0: Great. Well, good morning, Next Step Community Church. It is a gift to to be here with you. Uh, I've just been so blessed and encouraged by your worship and service this morning. and uh, I'm excited to continue as we open the scriptures. Today I've chosen a selection of passages from John, chapter 4, which we'll read on the screen here. So, now he, Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of the ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And then, leaving her a water jar. The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Uh, I have a wife, Jen, and two kids back at home. And and I met my wife in 2002. We were going to the same school, University of Maryland. We were part of a a Christian student group there, but we really connected because we took an art history class together. And and we were very different students. Uh, For starters, this class began at 10 in the morning, which for college me was very early. So I sat in the way back so I could hear the projector turning over the slides. I would fall asleep and then I'd hear the click and I'd wake up and I'd kind of write down the the notes and, and then I'd kind of doze back off for a couple minutes. Jen sat in the front. She was laser focused on everything. So even though I knew like, yeah, we're doing this pretty differently, if I study with Jen, I'm probably gonna be okay. So I always made sure that before the exams, we got some time together. So we studied, uh, that was the last class, uh, art history class I ever took. Jen went on to, to get a PhD in art history, so there you go. And, and somewhere in the middle, you know, we, we fell in love, we got married, and, and all that good stuff. And this is a story I've told probably like a million times. Because that question, you know, so how did the two of you meet? That's like one of the most popular you know, getting to know you questions out there. We love a good story. And usually in these stories, there's, there's a good bit of humor, maybe some, some misunderstandings, a little will-they-won't-they they tension. Uh, it tells us a little bit about their personalities and first impressions. Uh, that can be way off the mark. And, and these stories also give us a, a sense of place. Sometimes it's, it's, it's totally random, like meeting someone in an elevator or, or on the subway. Many times it's at, at a place where people go because they're looking to meet someone, like a, a sports bar or a nightclub, a campus ministry, or even a church. I mean, my, my friends, we all said we were going to the campus ministry meetings to, to meet Jesus, but like, let's be honest about the priorities <laughs> of sophomore boys, right? Increasingly, people are connecting online through matchmaking sites like Coffee Meets Bagel or, or Hinge. And there was a time when couples might be like a little sheepish to admit that they met online, but now it's, it's totally mainstream. Throughout history, these places that people would go to meet someone have, have shifted around. And back in, in the ancient, ancient Near East, when the time of, of the Bible, uh, the stories of the Bible were, were unfolding, there was really one spot that was the spot to meet someone. And that was the well. Wells played a significant role in the biblical story and culture. There were places for, for community, uh, places where people would obviously come to quench their thirst or provide for their animals. It, was, it became a rich metaphor for the, the satisfying life that God offers to humanity in Jesus and more. But today, I, I want us to consider another reason why people might be going to the well. Let me just say there, there are a lot of thirsty people going to the well if you get what I'm saying. Absolutely. And we see this throughout the biblical story. Some of the major players in the history of God's people met their spouse at a well. When Abraham's son Isaac needed a wife, Abraham put his best man on the job. And where did this guy go? Well, he went to a well, uh, to the time when women could get water. And when he got there, he prayed. He said, may it be that when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. A few moments later, he saw Rebecca, a beautiful young woman, filling her water water jar at the well. And so he hustled over, and he said, please, give me a little water from your jar. To which she replied, drink, my lord. And she offered some to his camels too, and the rest was history. The servant stayed with her family and then brought her back to meet Isaac, and they were married. His son Jacob had a similar experience. As he was journeying through the land, he stopped at a well to water his sheep. And a woman named Rachel arrived with her own sheep to water. And so Jacob rolls away the stone, covering the well so that they could drink. And then he kisses her and begins to weep. I don't know if you've had a first date with a lot of weeping, but uh, apparently this did the trick, and she brought him back to her home. And after some twists and turns, which is a story for another time, they got married. A little bit further down the story, we meet Moses. And where do you think he met his wife? I wouldn't bet against the well, right? right. Moses had fled to Egypt and settled by a well in Midian. And while he was there, he saw some shepherds harassing a group of women. So he drove them away, and the women watered their flock. And he was invited back to their home where he met Zipporah, his future wife. Well's where it's at. Yeah. Not only do these stories highlight the significance of the well as a place of meeting and betrothal, they all follow a similar pattern. Each contains the following six elements. There's a man on a journey from a foreign country. He encounters a woman at the well. Someone draws water. The woman hurries home to bring news of this visitor to her family. There's hospitality. The woman stays, uh, the the visitor stays with the woman's family. And finally, the two parties are joined as one. These are our narrative cues that help the readers or listeners of the story see how, how they're all connected. Right? It's kind of like if you go to a movies and the first shot is uh, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, what kind of movie are you at? Star Wars, right? Like you know it, right? If the story begins with once upon a time, you know, you got like a fairy tale coming your way, right? So when we jump ahead several hundred years to the time of Jesus, the initial hearers about this meeting between Jesus and the Samaritan woman are going to, they're going to have these cues in the back of their minds. And so how does this story unfold? Jesus is on a journey into Samaria from a different country. He encounters a woman at a well. They talk about drawing water. So at this point, things are, are gonna start to click. The hearers are gonna be thinking like, oh yeah, I know what's going on. I see what's coming here. And, and did I mention moments before this story? Jesus was referred to as the bridegroom. So after her encounter with Jesus, The woman returns to her community with news of this visitor. They extend hospitality. And they welcome Jesus to stay with them, which he does. And there's a joining. A a, a marriage, but not in kind of the the human institutional sense. There's something deeper going on here. This isn't necessarily a story about the the institution of marriage. Marriage is, is a good thing but it's not the ultimate thing. Singleness is a good thing, but it's not, it's not the ultimate thing. And at various times throughout the church, we've kind of elevated each one to a higher status than they need to have. But at the end of the day, marriage and singleness are, are signs. Signs that point to us towards the faithful love, commitment, sacrifice of Jesus. But this isn't a story about the signs. This is a story about the real deal, the real thing. This is a story about God's covenant with humanity, a marriage, a a union between God and people. And in the same way that we've seen how wells are so much more than, than wells, they play a key role in reminding us of the covenant love of God. You know, a lot of these stories about dating and romance and, you know, how I met your mother type sitcoms, There's a lot of elements of of humor in them. But when it comes to pursuing intimate connection with another person, there's often a lot of confusion and pain as well. There's fear of rejection, pretending to be someone we're not, grappling with our our own insecurities, wanting to, to mask the hard parts of our lives or our histories, what if this person doesn't, doesn't want to love me? What if no one wants to love me? Have you ever felt that way? Yeah. I'm right there with you. Amen. Amen. Have you ever struggled with feeling like you, you couldn't be known? Because someone that you wanted connection with might walk away if they really knew who you were. We, we know that this woman at this well had experienced loss and rejection in her life. It's, it's awful. And it's, it's not just an experience that can be resolved in marriage either. Marriage can be a very lonely place. Now, there's, there's a trend that we see throughout the biblical story where, where people go to the well for one thing. Maybe it's community, maybe it's romance, usually it's water, but in in Jesus, God is offering something different, something more. God is inviting us into a covenant. A covenant is a a unique relationship with, with a special type of commitment that two parties choose into. So in the ancient Near East, in the time of Jesus, it wasn't uncommon for stronger countries to make covenants with with weaker ones. They would offer protection and resources in exchange for loyalty. It's intentional, it's powerful, and often it can be really costly to uphold. And covenants are a major theme in the story of God. God chooses to make a covenant with humanity. And it all starts with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 2, God promises him, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. In Genesis chapter 15, God seals this promise with a covenant. So God has promised to be faithful to Abraham no matter what. God is going to bless the world through Abraham no matter what. And the great irony of this part of the story is that Abraham and his wife Sarah are elderly and childless. So how's that going to work? Eventually, through God's favor, they're granted a child, Isaac. But that's only a part of the equation. Right? In order for this covenant promise to continue, Ab- uh, Isaac has to get married and he's going to have children. And, and so where does this happen? At a well. Right? Where does the promise move forward again when his son Jacob meets his wife Rachel? At, at a well. And so where are Jesus and the Samaritan woman meeting? At a well. And not any well, Jacob's well. So while it takes us a few minutes to kind of unpack this and to understand the texture of the story, the original hearers of this would be seeing a huge neon sign flashing. They would know God is coming to fulfill the covenant. God's commitment to humanity because ultimately this covenant was not just about having a big family or having a lot of land. It was a promise that God would free the world from sin and from death that there would be right relationship between God and people and that the world would now be filled with blessing and with life the way that God had always intended for the world to be. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in Jesus, God's promises were coming true. Yeah. And that's what God's people had been yearning for yeah. for all this time. And I think that's what we're yearning for as well. If you, if you stayed with me for this long, thank you. you know, maybe you're a Bible nerd like me. Maybe you're incredibly patient and kind like my wife. But, but you can be forgiven for wondering, like, okay, Walt, well, like what does this have to do with me anyway? I'm glad you asked. The story about a woman at a well is a lot like our own stories. Ways that we want a place like a well that is safe, where we can be a part of a community that knows us and loves us, even if we're different from one another. Ways that the life-giving water of Jesus can quench our thirst like nothing else can. But there's something deep going on here. God's covenant invites us to consider something much more profound than a romantic relationship or a one-time spiritual transaction. Jesus meets us at the well to become joined to us in covenant love. In the beginning of this chapter, John tells us that Jesus intentionally came to Samaria. He had to go there, even though it was out of his way. It was an intentional choice, an intentional commitment that Jesus made to go and connect with this woman. And in the same way, as he chose her... And as God chose Abraham, God has chosen us to be recipients of God's love. Not in a a one-time or sporadic kind of way, but in an unending, unyielding, passionate way. As part of our nightly family routine, we read a part of our daughter's children's Bible. And it refers to God's covenant as God's never stopping, never giving up, Unbreaking, always and forever love. And I love that. But at the same time, it's hard for me to believe that God wants to love me like that. I just know myself, and I know my past, and I know my mistakes. And honestly, there's, there's just a lot of times where I feel like a jerk. My selfishness just ramps up. I'm not a good friend. I leave people hanging. And my wife and kids know that part of me way too well. You know when you're in like an argument with a spouse or a friend or a family member and you're, you're starting to feel heated and, and you start kind of like loading up in your mind some ammo that's really going to hurt them And there's a little voice inside of you that's like, hey, don't do it, man. But you ignore that. And you let him have it. And after that, those words come out, and that damage is done, I'm just left alone. Wondering, how could anyone love me? How could even those closest to me love me? How could God love Do you ever wonder that too? And yet we see Jesus came to this well to invite this woman into a relationship defined by this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Jesus is extending that same invitation to us too. God has chosen us for covenant love. But do we believe that? Or are there other things that we believe that keep us from receiving that invitation? Things we believe about ourselves? Things we believe about God? When Jesus begins having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, she engages with him. But there are also ways in in which she kind of keeps him at arm's length. Her very first words to him are, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And later, she brings up this dynamic again when she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim a place where we must worship is Jerusalem. There there are things (laughs) about this world, about God, about herself, that she's believed her, her whole life. Narratives that have had a defining impact on her. Narratives that have shaped how she understands her value as a woman, as a Samaritan, as a person who has gone through difficult circumstances. And so when God shows up in the flesh to offer this covenant love to her, there's a question mark. Almost a little bit of a will-they-won't-they tension. And and while there's a lot of this woman's story that is difficult for me to relate to, given our our vastly different life experiences, this part of it, uncertainty in the face of God's love, I totally get that one. Because I also have narratives running through my head all the time about who I am and who God is. They're not good ones either. There's a way in which I never feel enough, in which I'm constantly pulled into comparison traps with other people, seeing how how gifted they are, how established they are in their lives and careers, how it just seems like they, they have it all together. And yet here I am, feeling like a fraud and an imposter. So when it comes to the idea of receiving this lavish and extravagant love of God, love that is freely given, love that, that chooses to take hold of me no matter what, I struggle. Sometimes I, I, I don't know what to do with it. Don't I need to do more? Don't I need to be more to be worthy of this love? Don't I have to earn it somehow? And I know this story isn't unique to me. I didn't just conjure up this inadequacy narrative out of, out of nowhere. The air is filled with it. We're constantly getting messaging that we're not enough. Messages that say, for for whatever reason, this love, that's not for us. And when I really stop to think about it, well, usually it's when I buy into those lies. (laughs) That's when I start acting out like a jerk anyway. And the cycle just goes around and around and around. Yeah. (laughs) Is there a narrative that runs through your mind? Or your heart that causes you to hold God's love at arm's length? What is it? Maybe it's similar to what I shared. Maybe it's the idea that God's love is for certain kinds of people and you're just not one of them. Or that your past is too checkered for God to do anything with. Or that God would love you if you didn't Keep making that same kind of mistake, and yet there you go, just making that same kind of mistake. Yeah. Or maybe simply that God just doesn't see you, doesn't care about you. We hear stories like today's, where, where God comes in with this covenant love, an insistence to love and to bless us, and yet we we resist. We can't bring ourselves to to receive it, to believe that it's true. These lies block the love that God wants to give. There's this interesting moment in the story of Abraham and Isaac. They had been walking with God. God had been blessing them. Their lands and and their flocks grew, and they dug many wells, so that this blessing would flourish. And this prompted envy from another people group, the Philistines. And we read in Genesis 26 that the Philistines went around and stopped up all of these wells, filling them with dirt. Something about this image that's so powerful to me. We were created for connection with God, created to constantly receive and delight in God's covenant love for us the ways that God loves us all the way down. And yet something is blocking us. Our our hearts have been stopped up by these narratives that we've bought into, the lies we believed about ourselves, about God. Do you you feel that way? Like, yeah, I would love to, to receive this love, but there's something in the way. One of the things that Isaac had to do was go back in and dig up these wells so that the water would flow forth once again and God's covenant story would move forward once again. We've got to dig up these wells. We've got to get all of that junk out of there that is keeping us from experiencing the love and joy of God. <coughs> because how different would our lives be if we no longer believe that we were unworthy, unlovable, inadequate, overlooked what if our lives became shaped by the power of knowing that God has called us his own what would be different about your life what would be different about how you relate to God to yourself to others I'd love for us to find that out together so how do we get there Because that's easier said than done, for sure. Since these negative narratives are are reinforced every day, it's crucial to have daily reinforcements of what's true, daily ways of remembering and celebrating God's love for us. Even as Pastor Chris modeled for us, two minutes of silence a day just to remember we are loved, we are known, we are seen. And this means that we have to see Jesus' invitation for what it is. An an invitation to to union with him, to be joined with him forever, not just on Sundays, not just when we're in a bind, but each and every day. In the the Netflix show, (coughs) Master of None, the main character gets frustrated because women he was meeting with on dating apps just wanted him to take them out to nice dinners. They weren't interested in him. They just wanted a nice meal. And I think we got to ask, do we just want Jesus to buy us a nice dinner? Or do we understand that the well that Jesus isn't inviting us to isn't just for one-time refreshment, but is for lifelong relationship? Jesus sets himself up as the bridegroom, coming for us, the bride, the church, And for those of us who are married, we're not just married one day a week. We're married all the time. Jesus is wanting all of us, all the time. An everlasting covenant that will fulfill us in ways that nothing else can. (laughs) If you have been curious about Jesus, but maybe keeping him at, at arm's length, then perhaps now is the time to say yes. To say yes. I wanna receive your love in a lifelong way. (coughs) To stop hanging back and instead step forward in relationship. I get that this step can be hard. Remembering God's love for us can be hard. But that's why Jesus invites us into into a covenant community. A community that remembers and celebrates the love of Jesus together. Just like we see at the end of this story with the Samaritan woman. After Jesus stayed with them, many Samaritans became believers. And so now, instead of being a community that just reinforced narratives of shame or competition, which the woman of the well is all too familiar with, It became a community centered on following Jesus together. That's what a a church can be. We're not just people who show up at a common event or activity. We're invested in one another's lives. We can help each other dig up the wells and receive the love of Jesus together. There's really nothing like it. Members of this covenant community like in my church, like they, they know me. They really know me. Not in a way that's shameful or, or weird, but they, they know the narratives that I buy into. They know the ways that I can resist God's love. And they ask me about it. They challenge me on it. Sometimes I don't always welcome their reflections or their questions. But after my initial bristling dies down, I'm so thankful because I know that they are for me and they've entrusted me with the ways that they are wanting to grow as well. So we get to enjoy and pursue this covenant love together. So friends, what are the ways that you can help one another dig up the wells and let God's love flow forth? When God made a covenant with Abraham, God committed to doing whatever it takes to be faithful to that promise. Even entering into death. And in Jesus, we see God doing just that. Jesus goes to the cross to defeat sin, to defeat death, and to ensure that nothing would ever separate us from the love of God. That's what we remember. That's what we celebrate when we come to the table. We remember that we have been united to Jesus as his bride, that we literally receive the covenant love of Jesus into us to refresh us and renew us. And then we are sent from this table, not as a people who are shaped by narratives that erode who we are, but as people who are now shaped by God's never-stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Thanks be to God.